everybody, I'm excited to introduce you to today's preacher, Ken Lippold. Um, I first met Ken in a group of pastors that meets together from around the country, and um, I don't know if he knows this, but we refer to him as our Tim Keller. If you're not familiar with Tim Keller, here's what that means. Um, That means uh, you're about to hear from a man who will get you thinking. Uh, You're about to hear from a man who, um, I don't know how to say it in any other way other than he's a Jesus Jedi. Uh, Ken has a knack for seeing Christ in every text of scripture um, and presenting Jesus in a way that is fresh, uh, faithful to the text, and always warms my affections for Jesus. So I'm so excited for you to get to hear from my friend Ken today. Um, And it's not even just his preaching ministry, it's who he is. It's uh, Ken and his wife, Emmy, spent years uh, living in Europe, training ministers and leaders uh, for uh, how to reach a post-Christian culture um, with the good news about Jesus. How do you talk to your non-Christian friends about Jesus when they're not coming from a Christian background anymore? Ken is excellent at this, and so I'm so excited for you to get to hear from him today. Um, last thing I want to tell you is that uh, Ken uh, and his wife were spending years in Europe. Now they're back here in the States uh, pastoring Christ Church in LA, uh, where um, they're putting to use that training of how to reach a post-Christian culture with the good news about Jesus. And so I think we have a lot we can learn from him today. Honored to have them here with us this morning. Would you welcome forward my friend, Ken? Well, good morning. I think Chad's probably a little bit too kind in his introduction there. He told me I was going to get you thinking, so just in case the sermon doesn't do that, most of you are old enough to remember what a Walkman is. Do you remember that? A Walkman is neither a walk nor a man. Think about that. <laughs> Think about it. Uh, that's very kind of Chad to say those things. And I, I want to say uh, it's a real privilege for me to get to be here with you guys today. Um, not least because I've watched a lot of Chad's sermons because we're in this group together where we critique one another's sermons. And so I've always wondered how big that screen is. So now I know. <laughs> um, but also, you know, you guys, I'm sure you know this, but you've got a phenomenal pastor here. Um, He is a godly man, a man of integrity. And do you know what exudes from him every time I talk to him about this church is how much he loves you. Uh, He loves you dearly. And uh, he counts it a great joy in his life to get to be your pastor. So it's fun for me to get to to fill in for him today. So we're in the summer of love. And uh, I'm going to read our passage for us. And then I'll pray. And then we'll get into the sermon. So uh, you can follow along, uh, I think, on the screen. Or if you want to open it up uh, in a Bible before you... Um, It's 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and I'm going to read this from the NIV because I think that's what you guys have been using this summer. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting in verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Let me pray, and then we'll look at that passage. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that actually there is great joy for those who look to it and make it the center of their lives. And so, Lord, would you give us joy today as we look at this passage? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you might not know it to look at me, uh, but I am a cyclist. I have logged thousands and thousands of miles on my road bike uh, over the last 20 or so years. 
And anyone who is a real cyclist, any real cyclists out there, you, you'll know what I'm talking about. A real cyclist wears these special shoes that clip into your pedals. And so when you wear them, you actually become like physically attached to your bicycle. It's almost like you become one thing. So uh, if the bike falls over, you fall over. That's how it works. And uh, about nine years ago, uh, Emmy and I had, uh, we'd moved overseas to a place called Liverpool, England. And uh, I brought my bike with me because, you know, I'm a cyclist, so you gotta bring it with you. And uh, I was out for maybe my second or third ride in the city, uh, which is actually this bustling, busy city. And uh, we lived right in the center of it, and there are thousands of pedestrians walking around. You have to avoid certain areas because of them. Uh, there are dozens of buses and taxis, and they all fly up and down the one-way streets at Mach 1. That's how quickly they go. And as I'm nearing the end of my ride, trying to get back to where our apartment is, I'm nervously navigating the one-way streets, and I have to make a left-hand turn, which, by the way, is awkward for me as an American because they drive on the other side of the street over there. Uh, and so a left-hand turn in England, it's like a right-hand turn here. It's like, you know, you do it close to the curb, not, you know, far from the curb. And as I'm approaching my turn, I pass by a double-decker bus that is stopped at a bus stop about two blocks behind uh, where my left-hand turn is. And so I know the bus is there, and as I'm making my turn, I'm on the inside corner, and there is a taxi turning left at the same time. And he pinches me into the corner, and he actually bumps my handlebars with the back door of his taxi. And so now here I am, clipped into my bike, because remember, where the bike goes, you go if you're clipped in, and I start to, start to teeter, and I lose my balance, and I actually start falling towards the street where the double-decker bus has now hit Mach 1 and is coming straight towards me as I fall into the path of the bus. Now, in a moment like that, instinct takes over. Your instinct takes over. And your instinct could be the difference between life and death, or at least between walking away and a life-changing injury. Now, believe it or not, you can actually prepare for a moment like that. And in other words, you can train your instinct so that what comes out in the crisis moment, the moment of catastrophe, is the response that you would want. You can train yourself that way. And what I hope has emerged for you as you've gone through 1 Corinthians 13 is that love actually works in the same way. Love can actually become instinctive. It can become the way that you live naturally. And what I want us to see from this passage today is that the more you put self-denying love, the kind of love that 1 Corinthians 13 talks about, the more you put self-denying love into practice, the more it becomes part of you, the more it becomes an instinct. And so what this text shows us is that love, it's, it's the most excellent way to live. Of all the ways a person could live, you could choose to live. Paul says the most excellent way to live is the way of self-denying, self-sacrificing love for others. And while that might be true, it's hard. It's a really, really hard way to live. And it's easy to read this passage and go through it all summer long and throw your hands up and say, I'll never live up to that. I could never live that out. I could never live it out because most of the time I don't feel like living it out. And I get that, me too. There are many times each day I know I should be more patient, I should be more kind, I should be less proud, I should be more forgiving, I should be more trusting, I should be hoping and persevering. But I find myself reacting in ways opposite to the most excellent way of love. 
Or even worse, I find that I don't want to show love. It's not my desire to do that. But if you look at the verses that we just read, there's, look at this, there is nothing about feelings in this chapter. Go home and reread it later today. You'll find nothing about feelings in this chapter. Everything that's mentioned in this chapter is to describe love is a behavior. They're all behaviors. And here's an implication that emerges from this passage that shows up all over the Bible. Here it is. It's much easier to act our way into feelings than it is to feel our way into actions. It's much easier to act your way towards feeling something than it is to say, oh, I'm going to you know, try and build up this feeling within myself and then I'll act appropriately. No, no, feelings follow actions. If you wait until you feel like exercising self-denying love, you'll wait a long time. And so will the people around you who are in need of that love. And by the way, the downside to that personally for you is that if you, if you don't learn to do this, you'll never actually experience the joy that comes from giving out self-denying love for the sake of others. And by the way, another by the way, if you don't begin to practice this kind of love, you will actually plateau, you'll get stuck in your Christian maturity. And my guess is if you're a person who's feeling like, oh, I've been a Christian for a long time, but I feel like I'm just, I'm stuck, it might be because you're not practicing love. I'll put it another way, if you want to grow more mature as a Christian, the way to do that is to learn the most excellent way of self-denying love. And so this section of 1 Corinthians 13 that you've been looking at all summer, it's not about feelings, it's about hate behaviors. It's, in other words, it's about the practice of love. And as we look at this passage, you'll notice in there, by the way, there are seven positive statements and eight negative ones. Seven descriptions of what love is. It's patient, it's kind, it rejoices with the truth, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And eight negative ones. It's not boastful, it's not proud, it's not self-seeking, and so on. And we're going to focus mostly this morning on the phrase, love always perseveres, because that's where we're at in the, in the series. Love always perseveres. But I want to do it in the context of all of verses 4 to 7. So we're going to look at these verses under three headings. We're going to first see what love isn't, then we're going to see what love is, and then thirdly, we're going to see why Christian love is distinct from all other loves. Why Christian love is distinct from all other loves. So first, what love isn't. And because you've already looked at all these in great detail, I'm only going to spend a minute to focus on one of these uh, negative descriptors of love. One of these things that says love isn't this uh, in detail from those eight descriptions. Because I want us to be able to see what happens when we practice the opposite of love. In other words, who we become when we regularly practice the opposite of love. So in verse 5, it says love is not self-seeking. And this one, actually, it unlocks all the other negative descriptions of love. So think about it this way. A self-seeking person, don't they become envious? Don't they become proud and boastful and dishonoring of others? Isn't a self-seeking person easily angered? Doesn't a self-seeking person keep record of wrongs? And, and don't they actually delight in evil when their rival suffers? Now, when I think of a self-seeking person, I, I can't help but think of seagulls. And I know for many of you, a seagull, it conjures up images of wonderful beachside vacations. As a child, you actually enjoy the noise of a seagull flying around. Uh, but I just want to say, try living with them constantly, like Jane Goodall style, 
Seagull Living. And I'm sorry to talk about Liverpool so much, but uh, that's the city where we lived for a long time, and it's a coastal city, and, and when we were there, there was never a moment when you were outside or even inside when there wasn't at least one or a dozen seagulls present with you at all times. If you were inside, you can guarantee that all dozen of them were up on the roof and at least one of them was looking in the window, like reporting back to the others what you're eating. You knew that they were always with you. And they were always squawking as loudly as possible. Like it, the city had a soundtrack of just seagulls squawking in harmony. And I did the research on this. Uh, there's a big university there. I asked them to help me with this. I did the research on this. There are more seagulls in Liverpool than uh, oxygen molecules. That's how many are there flying around the city. And every single day, I used to walk past uh, this, this fast food chain on my way to and from work. And every morning for a year, without fail, I'd see this seagull outside this restaurant with a, its beak in, in a little bag of potato chips. And this happened day after day after day for more than a year. And I always thought it was just because people would go in, they would buy their meal, and they would eat it out in front, and then they would just litter the bag of chips. But then one day, a video started circling uh, around social media from one of the workers in that fast food place. And the video was of a seagull sneaking into the shop to take a bag of chips. It had those automatic sliding doors, so if something walked in front of it, they opened. So the seagull learned that if it walked up to the doors, the doors would open. It would hop over to this rack that had all the chips on it. It would grab a bag of chips, and it would run out. And the, the person who took the video, like, took a full video of this, and then the comment on it was, this seagull does this every single day and we can't stop it. <laughs> That's just one horror story I could tell you about seagulls, and that one didn't even affect me. I once lost an entire breakfast sandwich and almost a pair of sunglasses to a seagull. Another story for another day. Here's the point. A seagull is an evil, self-seeking creature <laughs> that has never once done a kind or loving action. <laughs> and so if you want a quick memorable definition of what love is not, love is not a seagull. It is not self-seeking. And the word that Paul uses here for self-seeking is just about as forceful as that. It could be, uh, you know, you could translate it, uh, love does not demand. It, is not, it does not strive for the self. The older translations say, love seeks not its own. And what Paul is getting at here is that the person who is growing in self-denying love is a person who does not grasp for or demand their own rights, their own preferences, their own desires over the needs, the rights, and even the preferences of somebody else. Instead, they're always thinking of the good of another. And here's what this is saying. It's impossible to be a person who lives the most excellent way of love if you are a self-seeking person. And so the more you practice the behavior of self-seeking, get this, the more your instinct will be to be self-seeking in important or critical or stressful situations. The more you're self-seeking in just normal everyday situations, the more you'll be that when it really matters. And what do you want your instinct to be when you're disagreeing with your spouse? Or when your children are acting up? Or when you're wronged by another person and you have to confront them? What do you want your instinct to be in that situation? Because the more we practice self-seeking behavior in the normal, easy moments of life, the more it comes out like an instinct in the stressful moments. 
it actually becomes who we are. So that's, that's just one picture of what love isn't. That's what it isn't. But what, it, what is it? That's point two, what love is. And the other thing, so we've noticed that there's positive and negative descriptions. The other thing I want you to notice about these verses is beyond that positive and negative, it also shows that uh, the, descript, the positive descriptions of love are both active and passive. Meaning sometimes they're passive. So sometimes it means love means restraint. It means waiting. Sometimes it means not speaking. It means not taking actions. That's the passive side. And other times it means action. It means kindness. It means protection. And so when you want to describe what love is, it's both active and passive. And today we're going to focus on just one of the active descriptions of love, that it always perseveres. But before we look at that, let's just go back. Let's look at the first two in the list here so we can see the difference between an active one and a passive one. And by looking at them, we can see just how it is that practicing love or not practicing love actually shapes our instincts. And you see that in these first two that Paul mentions. He says, love is patient, love is kind. Patient, that's passive, meaning it's more about restraint. It's about not doing something. It's about waiting. But love is kind. That's active. Kindness is something that you do for the benefit of another person. And if I'm honest, I actually hate that these two are first in the list. Because these two are the, the most difficult for me. I can't get past these two. I begin reading this passage. I'm like, well, I, okay, let's work on these. And actually, the thing is, they go together. They're like a unit, if you think about it. Because impatience almost always leads to being unkind. If you're impatient, doesn't that make you unkind to the people that are making you wait? Now, maybe it's a little too cl cliche to do this, but I'm from Los Angeles, and LA has a reputation, uh, if it has a reputation for anything, it's traffic, am I right? Uh, that's the reason none of you ever visit there. <laughs> and I'm kind of okay with that, because if you come, then traffic gets worse. Uh, but you know, as soon as you find out I'm from LA, you assume that I spend six hours a day in my car to travel 10 miles, and I'm going to go ahead and let you keep believing that stereotype. But the thing is, I'm not so bothered about the people who cut in front of me on the freeway or who pull out in front of me at an intersection, though that is annoying. I'm not so bothered by them. I'm bothered by the people who seem to drive unnecessarily slow in situations where they don't need to. And I was saying to someone the other day that I, I wish I had, uh, do you remember those old school CB radios that truck drivers had? I wish that every car had one of those so that I could communicate with the car in front of me. And I could say, you know, hey, you know, I'd start out really, really kind to them. Be like, uh, you know, hello, white Toyota. Where are you headed today? Oh, that sounds really nice. Would you just go ahead and go there? <laughs> just go. And I can be seen regularly in the car because I don't have a radio doing this. Come on, come on, you know, or this. If I'm real, or like this, if I'm like, really, can we go, please? Is that just me? Okay. Some of you are clearly the person I'd be yelling at over the radio. Here's what studying this passage in detail has revealed to me. That when I'm thinking that way, and when I'm acting that way in the privacy of my own car, and when it's something just as simple as traffic, that seems innocuous. It's not affecting anyone. They can't hear me. They don't see me. 
But what I'm realizing is the more I practice that sort of behavior privately, the more it comes out publicly. The more I practice that sort of behavior privately, the more I actually become an impatient and unkind person. You see, all of my behaviors, my actions, they're working to shape me into one kind of a person or another, a loving person or an unloving person. C.S. Lewis once put it this way, he said, we're all turning into either an everlasting splendor or an eternal horror. It's about who we're becoming and our behavior shape who we become in the future. It's the same, by the way, if you're, if you're a musician, you know, the more you practice piano or the guitar or the violin privately, the more that private practice manifests itself publicly when you're playing in front of people. And so this is why all of this matters, because the more that we practice love, the more loving of a person we become. Now, Chad asked me specifically to look at the word persevere down in verse 7. So let's look at that. It says, love always perseveres. And I think it's vitally important that Paul puts this one near the end of the list, because I think the only way you can actually live a lifetime of all the descriptors of love, that love is kind, that it doesn't envy, that it's not self-seeking, that it rejoices with the truth, that it always hopes, etc. The only way you can live a lifetime of that is through perseverance. And the word there for persever perseverance, it's the word endurance, it's fortitude. And the reason this one, by the way, it's in the active category, not the passive one, because we, we would tend to put this in the passive one, like you just persevere, you just, you just hold out. But the, the word that Paul uses, it's not to passively endure, it's to conquer, it's to overcome. Love conquers, love overcomes. It perseveres, it, love requires commitment, it requires stamina, it requires stick-to-itiveness. I'll just put it one more way. You could translate this as, love is not a passing fad that changes with the next group of cultural influencers. And so think of the, the positive descriptions of love. It's patient, it's kind, rejoicing with the truth, protecting, trusting, hoping, persevering. And what Paul is getting at here is the more that we practice these behaviors, the more that we persevere in them, the more they become natural to us, the more they become who we are. So much so that in the moment of emergency, of stress, of crisis, of calamity, what comes out of us is not self-seeking, not pride, not anger, not record-keeping, not arguments, but kindness, patience, truth. It is actually possible to train ourselves in the most excellent way of love so that love becomes our instinct in all situations. Now, back to that street corner on my bike in Liverpool. You were wondering if I was going to finish that. <laughs> I know. I did that to you. I remember I said in a moment like that, instinct takes over. And when I first started riding with clip-in pedals 20 years ago, I kept falling over. I'd clip in, and I, I couldn't even get one rotation of the pedals before I'd fall over. And I asked a friend who had been cycling for 20 years, I said, how do you do this? How do you make sure that you don't fall over? And, you know, I'd, come to, I'd finally get up and going, and I'd come to a stop, and I'd fall over. And he said to me, you just have to train yourself. Pick which foot you're going to clip out. 
and do that every time. And just, you know, every time before you go on a ride until it becomes instinct to you, just, just clip out. So I said, okay, it's gonna be my right foot. I'm always gonna clip out my right foot. And so for probably the first three to six months of riding, I would tell myself, and I probably instinctively in my head do this without even realizing it, as I'm coming to a stop, I always just say, clip out right in my head, clip out right, clip out right. And I did it over and over and over and over again. On ride after ride after ride, at this point for probably 10 years. And that's what took over in that moment of certain death. Without even thinking about it, I instinctively clipped out my right foot, which just happened to be the direction I was falling, clipped out my right foot, placed it on the ground, stabilized myself as the bus went whizzing by. Now, this is how it can be with love. That the more we practice love, the behaviors of love, over and over and over again, despite our feelings, the more it becomes our instinctive reaction in all situations, no matter how stressful. Now, let's just take a step back and look at the person who loves this way. Just glance over verses 4 to 7 again and think about a person who has all the positives and none of the negatives. And don't you want to be loved by this person? Isn't that who you want to be loved by? Or even better, don't you want to be this person? You want that to be your reputation for who you are? This is the reason that most of the world seems to, they, they reject the rest of the Bible, but they love 1 Corinthians 13. Go to any pagan wedding and they're reading 1 Corinthians 13. They respect, they accept this chapter of the Bible as truth because look at the love you can receive if you're loved by this person. Or if you can live it out, look at who you can become. In fact, let's do a little exercise. I read this once in a book. I'm going to put verses 4 to 8 up on the screen. And I've just put a little blank everywhere you find the word love. And I want you to take a minute and read this. And everywhere you see uh, the spot where it should say love, I want you to replace that with your name. So, for example, Ken is patient. Ken is kind, etc. Just take a minute and do that. Now, on the one hand, you can do that little exercise, and you could be inspired. You could think, I could become that. But on the other hand, it's not too long before you realize it doesn't really describe you very well, does it? You might not even be able to get past the first descriptor. But this is the point where Christian love becomes distinct from all other loves. And this is point three, why Christian love is distinct from all other loves. Because think with me about who this passage does describe. Now, when Paul wrote these words, who was he thinking of? Who could he have had in mind? And there's really only one option. It could only be Jesus Christ that he had in mind. And so let's do that exercise again, but replace the word love with the name Jesus. Jesus is patient. 
Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not boast. Jesus is not proud. Jesus does not dishonor others. Jesus is not self-seeking. Jesus is not easily angered. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. Jesus always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Jesus never fails. And this is where point three comes in. Because we could, what we could possibly not ever do, Jesus Christ did to perfection. Christian love is distinct from all other loves because it's modeled after Jesus Christ himself. In 1 John chapter 4, the apostle John says this one sentence. He says, God is love. Jesus Christ from all of eternity is God and he has experienced the perfect self-giving love within the trinity of Father, Spirit, and Son. And therefore, Jesus Christ is love incarnate. Which means everything he did in heaven and on earth, and he does today in heaven, was and is motivated by love because he himself is love. Now, here's the incredible thing about the love of Christ, the love that is distinctly Christian. Who do you think Paul, so we know who Paul has in mind, who's living this out, but who do you think Paul has in mind to be loved in this passage? Who are we supposed to practice this love towards? Well, think about this. Who do you want to be impatient with? An impatient person, don't you? Who do you want to be unkind to? An unkind person. Who do you want to dishonor? Someone who's dishonored you. In other words, Paul is talking about a love that is expressed not to a person who deserves it, but to a person who least deserves it. And so it's all well and good to love another patient person, another kind person, another humble person, a peaceful person. That person is very lovable. But to love an impatient person, to actually be patient with them, an unkind person, to be kind to them, to love a proud person, an angry one, that's another story because that person is unlovable. And so when are you exercising the most amount of love? The reality is we are most loving when we love the unlovable. We are the most loving when we love the person who doesn't deserve the love. And this is what makes Christian love distinct from all other loves. Because it's precisely when we are the least deserving, the least lovable, that Jesus Christ exercised the most amount of love possible. The Apostle Paul puts it this way over in Romans chapter 5. It'll be on the screen. You see, at just the right time, When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. Verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so when did Jesus Christ give his life? When did he give his body over to torture and death? It was while we were still sinners, while we're unlovable, when we least deserved it, Jesus Christ practiced the most amount of love possible precisely when we least deserved it. And what this means is the love of Christ and therefore distinctly Christian love is self-originating. 
Christian, distinctly Christian love is self-originating, which means the, the reason for the love has nothing to do with the object of the love. The reason for the love comes not because the object of the love is lovely in any way, but God loves what is unlovely. He loves people who give him no reason to love them. He loves those who have rejected him. He loves those who have lived day by day outside of his commands and his desires. God who is love, who in practice is patient and kind and not envious and not boastful or proud, who is not self-seeking, who does not delight in evil, God who always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, he completely and utterly loves those who are impatient and who are unkind and who are proud and who are self-seeking and who delight in evil. And this is what makes Christian love distinct from all other loves because God's love for you is self-originating. If you ask God why he loves you, do you know what he'll say? Because I do. And when you put this kind of love into practice, this is what makes you become like Jesus Christ. That when you begin to love like Jesus Christ, your love actually begins to, to have the beginnings of being self-originating. Practicing this kind of love over and over, day after day after day, is what matures you as a Christian. Because this is the love of Christ. It's self-originating, self-giving love. Now, at the beginning, we said that if we really attempt to put this kind of love into action... It, it's pretty quickly that we want to throw our hands up in the air because we just don't feel like loving this way. We might even want to love this way, but when the time comes to actually put it into practice with a person who really, really doesn't deserve it, the feelings likely won't be there. So what are we to do? Well, this is where that idea of perseverance comes back in. We have to persevere. Now, something I say a lot uh, at my church is, and I said it earlier, it's much easier to act your way towards feelings than it is to feel your way towards actions. So feelings follow actions. And let me just return briefly to an idea that we started with, that none of what Paul has said thus far has to do with the feelings of love. All of these are the behaviors of love. And so here's the point I'm trying to make. It's nearly impossible to feel our way towards self-denying love. Most of the time, we won't feel like doing it. Or even if we do have the positive feelings of self-denying love, those feelings tend to fade away very quickly when we get into doing it. And so we need perseverance. We need to persevere in the actions of love despite our feelings if we truly want to become loving. And what you'll find is that the more you persevere in the behaviors of self-denying love, the more and more you'll find yourself naturally wanting to do it, even enjoying it. But how do we get to that enjoyment? How do we get to the joy that comes from being a truly loving person? It's only by practice. It's only by doing it over and over and over and over again that one point in your life you will get to the point where you must exercise self-denying love and that will be your instinct. And think about it like this. Looking at paintings does not make somebody a painter. Listening to music does not make someone a musician. You have to pick up the brush and dip it in some paint and put it on the canvas. You have to sit down at the piano and strike some keys. 
And so in the same way, we, we can love by no other way than persevering in the practice of love. And so as we wrap this up, just think with me for a minute. For whom in your life do you need to practice love? Who's the person that doesn't deserve it? Is it your neighbor? Is it your spouse? Is it your kids? Is it a colleague? Is it the person on the other end of the service call? That is the place that you need to let your actions of love go before your feelings of love. That is where you and I need to practice love when we don't feel like it because if we practice it enough, eventually not only will it become our instinct to love that person that will actually, get this, we will actually get to the point where we receive joy from doing it. And when we do that, imagine the impact. Imagine the impact in your family, in your friendships, in your office, in your marriage. Imagine the impact in, in your city if a church like yours can practice this distinctly Christian, self-originating, self-giving love. That's the kind of stuff that changes the world. And so if we can continue to grow in our practice of this kind of love, then there's no end to what God can do in our relationships and in the places that we live. That's why love always perseveres. And you're going to need, and I'm going to need, God's help to do that. So let me pray and ask him for his help. Heavenly Father, we need your help. There is absolutely no way that we could over and over and over again practice self-denying love without your help, without your spirit strengthening us, without you through your spirit pouring out your love into our hearts. And so, Lord, would you do that in order that we could then let that overflow out of us into the lives of particularly those who least deserve it. And we ask it in your son's name.